welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Paul Linsky. I'm the Chief Resident in Thoracic Surgery at UAB, the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. William Holman. Dr. Holman is a professor of surgery at UAB and at the VA Medical Center. He went to medical school at Cornell University and then completed his general surgery and thoracic surgery training at Duke University. He has been on faculty at UAB and the VA Medical Center ever since. He serves currently as the Chief of Surgery at the Birmingham VA Medical Center. Today, Dr. Holman will be discussing the history of cardiopulmonary bypass. Dr. Holman, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to talk about this. Um, I really enjoy reading about surgical history, and uh, cardiopulmonary bypass is foundational to uh, our specialty, as you know. Uh, and relatively uh, recent it's in its development. It all happened uh, certainly within my lifetime. Um, it also brings together uh, divergent areas of uh, medical science, everything from bioengineering, blood biomaterial uh, interactions, um, the physiology of the circulation, uh, not to mention the uh, pathology of various acquired and uh, congenital heart uh, diseases that uh, we can now manage successfully because of cardiopulmonary bypass. So you've kind of elucidated a little bit of this, but what really sparked the search for the creation of a cardiopulmonary bypass machine? You know, it was the observation of a number of people. I think John Gibbon appropriately gets credit for being a major uh, innovator and pioneer in this area. Uh, he watched a woman succumb to a massive pulmonary embolus, and, which is distressing to say the least, um, but he reasoned that if he could have just for a short period of time substituted uh, her cardiopulmonary function with a machine, he could have successfully removed the thrombus uh, from her main pulmonary arteries and saved her life. But really the history antedates that. Uh, there were observations made in the 19th and early 20th century uh, showing that the heart could withstand surgery. There was a period of time where surgeons generally thought the heart was off, off limits to any kind of surgical uh, intervention. Uh, I have to bring up Dr. Luther Hill took care of a young man who'd been stabbed in the heart, um, operated on him in the patient's home, and uh, through a extended thoracotomy, cut open his pericardium, relieved tamponade, and placed a suture in his heart. Um, ironically, the patient, although he survived that incident, succumbed to another stab wound that was fatal uh, several decades uh, later. But in summary, a number of physicians realized that uh, operations on the heart uh, would be feasible, uh, but they needed uh, something to support uh, the gas exchange and circulatory function of the heart and lungs while they did their work. 
and uh, that led to the development of cardiopulmonary bypass. The cardiopulmonary bypass machine is a complex creation. Was it made in one piece or was it made in several components and then put together later? Yeah, it was sort of an ongoing process. I think the word is concatenation. Um, one of the most important contributions was also one of the simplest, and that is the uh, roller uh, pump developed by Mike DeBakey uh, around 1930. Uh, that allowed uh, blood to be moved. Um, Gibbon recognized the need for gas exchange and uh, developed the oxygenating device uh, in Philadelphia over uh, at, at Thomas Jefferson to give attribution. Um, developed it over several decades, interrupted by uh, World War II, and that was done in collaboration with a number of others, uh, hematologists, engineers, um, and actually the collaboration of IBM that uh, also worked with John Kirkland later at the Mayo Clinic. So uh, Dr. Gibbon uh, developed a machine that was fairly unwieldy um, and that used whole blood, but that would pump blood um, through a, a system that achieved gas exchange over a screen-like uh, membrane that was having uh, air passed over it. Uh, he only used this in a small number of cases and then uh, moved on with his uh, surgical career, but the idea for the device uh, was picked up by uh, John Kirkland, who was uh, a visionary uh, in many, um, many ways. Uh, he saw the need for the device, and I'm going to diverge for a moment and talk about some of the other people that were working at the time because uh, he wasn't the only one. There were uh, those who felt that a biological uh, oxygenator was really the way to go and were using uh, a variety of uh, animal lung blocks to provide uh, gas exchange. Obviously there weren't enough uh, primate lungs to meet the need, but they were tried clinically. Um, experimentally, some other uh, animal lungs such as canine lungs were used and they were never uh, very effective. Another approach was to use a human being as a uh, pump oxygenator which is what uh, C. Walton Lillehei uh, did uh, with a uh, series, a very bold uh, series of operations he performed at the University of uh, Minnesota. Uh, around the same time that John Kirkland was working at the Mayo Clinic. In the cross-oxygenation model, uh, blood was pumped from a uh, donor, usually uh, the parent of a child, uh, obviously cross-patch negative, to support the child during an open-heart operation. Uh, this, is, this was being done with uh, yeah, well, let me diverge for a second again. I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Lillehei about these uh, studies when I wrote a paper sort of looking back at one of his seminal papers uh, that I wrote for the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. He was a fascinating man. Uh, in any event, um, 
he said that this whole experience was pretty stressful for the people in the operating room and uh, not the least reason or not the least of which reasons was that you could have a 200% mortality if you had a death in the parent and the child or the donor and the child. Um, and one of the key positions was to work a roller pump that controlled the flow of blood to and from the baby um, <clears throat> under the direction of uh, Dr. Lillehi and the anesthesiologist. Um, there around this time was a Purdue graduate uh, engineer uh, named Richard DeWall who uh, was looking to work in Lillehi's lab. And Dr. Lillehi didn't really have a job for him, uh, but he did need a bright, uh, hard-working person to help out with his cross-circulation, so he struck a deal. Uh, this is according to Dr. Lillehi, in that Dr. DeWall would work on something called a bubble oxygenator in the lab while uh, one or two days a week he would go to the OR and uh, run the cross-circulation. Uh, Dr. Lillehi left out an important uh, observation uh, that others had made when he asked Lillehi to undertake this uh, piece of work. And he, observation was that many senior people in the field thought that a bubble oxygenator was never going to be possible, largely because of the foaming of the blood when it's uh, has oxygen passed through a sparger. A sparger looks like the thing on the bottom of an aquarium that creates little bubbles. Um, and you can never discount the role of serendipity. Right around the time that DeWall started to work on his project, the Dow Chemical Company came up with a silicone-based defoaming agent that was uh, biocompatible. In other words, it wouldn't poison you and could be sprayed on uh, metal shavings as a very effective uh, defoamer. So uh, Lillehi understood the limitations of cross-circulation. It was never going to be something that could be used every day or even very easily in adults. And uh, he was developing a bubble oxygenator in the lab and actually succeeded. Uh, the paper that I reviewed talked, among other things, about the initial uses of the bubble oxygenator, which was conceived as a um, non-disposable device uh, where blood was returned from the patient, uh, was oxygenated with small bubbles through a sparger unit, and then passed through something that looked like a retort in the chemistry lab, but was filled with metal shavings that uh, one of the mechanics at the university was kind enough to supply it sprayed with this silicone defoaming agent and then circulated back to the patient. So skipping back to um, the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Kirkland was working at that time with the original Mayo design, but he uh, brought in a group of experts in physiology, uh, congenital heart disease, uh, as well as some expert engineers um, from IBM to help him design a better version of the given uh, oxygenator, which he never put his name on, um, and then went to the uh, board at the Mayo Clinic and asked permission to operate on a series of children 
with congenital heart disease. It was um, quite a bold thing to do, and this was all before institutional review boards, ethics committees, um, any of that, uh, not to mention the fact that the uh, monitoring systems were fairly rudimentary. Um, no swan gans catheters, not that you could use them in a child anyway, but um, all of this was done with a sound knowledge of basic uh, physiology or the pathophysiology of tetralogy of flow and the uh, physiology of the circulation, oxygenation. Uh, and also another thing that Dr. Kirkland recognized that we'll talk about in a little bit is the need for a very strong team. Uh, in other words, you just didn't have the anesthesiologist du jour or the scrub nurse du jour come in and work with you. You had someone who had drilled on these cases in the laboratory with Dr. Kirkland and his team of surgeons before you ever went to the OR. Um, a absolutely key member of that um, group were the people that ran the heart-lung machine, so that he envisioned that group as being a separate entity and uh, really was the start of the field of cardiovascular perfusion. In fact, when he came to Birmingham from uh, Rochester, he brought uh, his uh, one of his perfusionists with him. Uh, another piece of this puzzle was um, working out the altered physiology of the uh, DeBakey pump. So it was a relatively non-pulsatile system. It's not as flatline as a rotary pump, but it's certainly far from normal. Uh, there were a number of um, investigators who were interested in the non-pulsatile circulation, one of whom was uh, Dick Shepard, who uh, is an emeritus professor here at UAB. So uh, Richard Shepard spent quite a bit of time quantifying the energy of uh, arterial pulsation, uh, figuring out how it translated to the capillary level, and attempting to figure out what alterations it would cause in the body if you put a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass for a period of you know, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, or a few months. Uh, another key component in all this was the um, concept of hypothermia as a safeguard uh, against especially brain injury, but really any organ injury. Um, there was a surgeon in uh, Canada, ironically enough, uh, Wilfred Bigelow, who um, spent a major part of his professional career looking into uh, the benefits and limitations of hypothermia, the use of short periods of circulatory arrest, and uh, interestingly spun off into looking at hibernation. So the thought in the 30s was, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, was that bears and other uh, mammals hibernate uh, successfully for extended periods of time. And the question they were asking was whether there was some chemical or biological substance that rendered them uh, 
immune to periods of very low circulation. And interestingly, the uh, search to understand hibernation still goes on. It's something that's not just seen in large mammals, but uh, states of torpor, et cetera, exist in insects and other uh, animals that live in the far northern part of Canada. One of the big or the most important components of the heart-lung machine is uh, the heat exchanger. Um, uh, there was a major advance made at Duke um, by Dr. Brown, uh, who developed one of the early uh, cross-current heat exchangers that used water um, circulated at specific temperatures uh, through a heat exchanger against the blood that was coming out of the oxygenator and going into the patient. So with all of these tools, the um, field moved forward um, uh, and really exploded in the uh, 60s, which posed a whole another group of problems, like how do you train uh, an entire large group of surgeons to populate the country who actually understand this uh, machine and how to do cardiac operations. Uh, that's another talk. So uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is the advent of cardiac pacing, which is something that grew out of uh, the work being done by C. Walt Lillehigh and others. Uh, this was another story I'd, I'll pass along from my conversation with him. Uh, at the time, the surgeons were operating on ventricular septal defects, and from time to time they would have uh, complete heart block, and every resident should know uh, where the specialized conduction system is relative to uh, a VSD and how to avoid it. But they didn't know that um, when they first started operating on these defects. And the children, some children would end up in heart block and it, there was no pacer available at the time, so if they didn't recover on their own, they would usually die. Unbelievably enough, places like major university hospitals didn't have real bioengineering departments as we now know them. Uh, the man he hired, who well, actually hired two men, it was Earl Bakken, B-A-K-K-E-N, and his brother, who were recent um, graduates in electrical engineering, uh, and they worked out of their garage in Minneapolis. Um, they heard of the problem, and you know this is a story of how Medtronic was born. They developed um, external pacing systems that ran to the surface of the heart on temporary epicardial wires uh, to stimulate the heart, and it soon became obvious that permanent pacer systems were necessary to sustain uh, children with complete heart block or other patients with conduction disorders, and uh, the whole field of um, cardiac electrophysiology was born. Um, one other aspect of this that should be mentioned is the foundational discovery of uh, heparin, which um, happened prior to cardiopulmonary bypass, but uh, without which, uh, obviously, um, cardiopulmonary bypass would never have been uh, possible. I think you've hinted at this a little bit earlier in your talk, but could, do you mind describing the coalescence of the components 
of what now is the first cardiopulmonary bypass machine? Sure, that um, was really the work of uh, John Gibbon to uh, investigate the physiology of gas exchange and uh, circulation within AIM, to, in a grant you'd call it a specific AIM of developing a machine to mimic it. Uh, it's a tall order, uh, especially in the face of uh, criticism. It seems that with every major advance in surgery, there are always naysayers that uh, feel it's a it's just too much. It's not uh, appropriate, and uh, it's sort of a gray area to say it's unethical. Because I'm not sure letting someone die is ethical, but. Uh, all those uh, criticisms come together, and particularly if you have failures when you start, which is, in a sense, inevitable, um, how do you respond to that? Uh, I had the honor of working briefly with John Kirkland when I first came on faculty here. He had an incredible uh, talent for seeing where a project needed to go and then bringing uh, a team of experts together in a thoroughly professional way to uh, get them to that point. Um, as he had been described as a great amalgamator of men, but you know he was really the ideal person to carry the project forward um, not just because of his intelligence and work ethic but his ability to uh, get people thinking about the question from every conceivable aspect uh, before they move forward so you know there were doubters uh, I'm sure who weren't sure that it was appropriate to uh, begin doing these operations in children, but I think he made his point pretty quickly, uh, especially seeing the limitations of the closed procedures that were, you know, had just been popularized with things like the Blaylock Taussig shunts and a variety of other shunts that were used to, uh, as palliative measures in congenital heart surgery. So you know, developing the tool of cardiopulmonary bypass was obviously where the field needed to go. It just wasn't so obvious um, in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, the other things uh, in terms of cardiopulmonary bypass a little bit is serendipity. You know, the field of anesthesia moved forward uh, rapidly during this time with the development of disposable endotracheal tubes and then later, slightly later, the development of fluorinated hydrocarbons and better anesthetic agents and better monitoring or I guess you could argue the entire field of anesthesiology because prior to about 1930-1940 anesthesia was generally administered by um, trained nurses. Uh, the field of uh, perfusion, um, the development of EKG monitors, uh, blood pressure monitors. Um, the original, I uh, also had the pleasure I came to Alabama as an acting intern from Cornell in 1977 and worked with Dr. Civico and Dr. Kirkland 
and saw the original, I think they call them the Mayo boxes or something like that, but basically they were strain gauges, uh, three of them mounted on a sheet metal holder, um, looked like, it was, they were done nicely, but they were obviously homemade. And those strain gauges allowed you to read pressures, but you had to kind of know what, uh, how the thing was calibrated. The needles were just jumping back and forth, but it would give you pressures. Uh, typically they chose uh, systemic arterial pressure, right atrial pressure, and left atrial pressure. So um, all of this came together uh, uh, to uh, make the initial uh, use of bypass uh, a little bit hazardous, but uh, tremendously uh, successful. Would you like to briefly summarize some of the advancements that have happened since the, the initial bypass machine that has led to our current version of technology t today? Yeah, um, there are many uh, incremental improvements that have been made in the uh, cardiopulmonary bypass systems. Uh, I think the first was another generation of oxygenators. There are the uh, microporous sheet or hollow fiber oxygenators that I think most programs use. I'm not even sure you can buy a disposable bubble oxygenator anymore. Uh, but it's those um, oxygenators that have made uh, longer term ECMO uh, possible, the extracorporeal membrane oxygenator uh, for uh, uh, veno-venous ECMO as well as um, veno-arterial ECMO um, and really amazing in that uh, with the early pump oxygenators in the late 50s and early 60s uh, it was a challenge to keep somebody uh, from getting terribly ill from a few hours of cardiopulmonary bypass and now we have patients in the ICU that will be on ECMO for a month or six weeks or more uh, prior to transplantation. Uh, another um, important development were safety measures. So things like the uh, alarm systems to detect uh, air emboli uh, faster than you could ever see it happen and automatically stop the uh, pump. Um, and then other uh, filters that uh, help remove particulate matter from the lines. Uh, the development of inline uh, biochemical analyzers, uh, I think, has also been uh, helpful to the field, uh, it, it, just so you can online continuously monitor um, the uh, gases uh, on the arterial and venous side. Uh, one other area to mention is the development of the team advocated by John Kirkland because I heard him say it. Um, you know, you've got to have a strong team of dedicated experts uh, caring for these patients because it really is complex uh, surgery. Um, we now have uh, an entire field of cardiac uh, anesthesiology. There's uh, men and women who are devoted to uh, care of the uh, thoracic or cardiothoracic surgical patient and become highly expert uh, in the management of the patients. And then, uh, importantly, uh, the perfusionists. The perfusionists are uh, mainly responsible for the day-to-day -day, uh, 
management of the ECMO circuits. Uh, they're also oftentimes the ones that bring uh, innovation to uh, the OR. When I ask them about problem patients, uh, our perfusionists will get out in their networks and communicate and uh, come back with innovative solutions that uh, help us expand, uh, you know, the treatment options for, you know, everything from improved safety measures, uh, use of vacuum circuitry and nullifying the potential complications of that therapy and uh, most recently some really innovative answers to uh, putting massively obese patients on uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. So. Uh, very important uh, professionals that are all uh, members of the team, uh, as well as the nurses and other mid-level providers in the um, ICU caring for the VAD patients and the uh, heart and lung transplant patients. And then it goes without saying the cardiologists uh, that have worked with us uh, since day one in uh, managing patients with cardiac disease. Well, Dr. Holman, I want to thank you very much for spending the afternoon with me and talking to everybody about the history of cardiopulmonary bypass. Uh, we really appreciate your thoughts and your knowledge of the history, and we thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure.